Welcome to the Last Past the Post podcast, where we deconstruct political ideologies, party platforms, and current events. This episode is on the COVID-19 vaccinations and the politics behind its distribution, rollout, and social responsibility. So what we're not doing this episode is talking about the chemistry. I don't understand the chemical makeup or its efficiencies or anything like that. What we are doing is this ongoing theme of profits and corporations, companies and governments and how we as individuals sort of have to deal and adapt to what is currently happening with the global pandemic. Yeah, so the vaccine has finally come out. It's been about a year since the lockdown started. It's actually been fairly quick, all things considered. Having a vaccine for a new disease like that in a year is something we've never really seen before. But having the vaccine in production isn't really good enough. It needs to be handed out. In a crisis, what we often see is people losing nuance and essentially having mask off politics. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. A lot of these companies are very blatantly making a bunch of profit from these vaccines. And a lot of them were partially or almost even fully government funded. Uh, It's the regular theme of uh, privatizing the profits of something, socializing the costs and losses where the taxpayers have to foot the bill. So if you think of any of the vaccines, I mean, there are four in uh, Canada right now uh, and a few others elsewhere. There's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, there's Moderna, there's Pfizer, and AstraZeneca. All of those are company names. They're all corporations. The AstraZeneca one used to be called Oxford, actually, because it was made by Oxford University. Originally, in fact, they wanted to make it open source, meaning anybody could produce this for free. Uh, Unfortunately, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation actually talked to uh, the Oxford researchers and threatened to pull out funds if they didn't sell it to the company AstraZeneca, which the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is actually heavily invested in. As a result, sold out essentially to Big Pharma, and now that company is profiting on this vaccine instead of everyone potentially making it at a very low cost. Right. So if we want to be upset about Bill Gates in regards to the vaccine, microchips is not the topic. It is actually selling out the vaccine so that he profits off of his investment in AstraZeneca. Makes you wonder, like, how many lives essentially have been lost because of this privatization of the vaccine, which actually brings another uh, topic at hand, too. A lot of countries simply can't afford the vaccine. A lot of second and third world countries, especially. Uh, I think my favorite that comes to mind uh, because of, well, because of the whole colonialism aspect, is South Africa, actually. Uh, That's where the Oxford, now AstraZeneca vaccine was tested. And now if they want to buy the vaccine, the government has to pay twice the price what members of the EU have to pay. The reason for that is because the EU put a bunch of funding money into the vaccine. South Africa didn't. They only provided the black bodies that it was tested on. You know, it's not necessarily directly responsible, but not long after we saw the South African variant of the COVID virus. Who knows, maybe if they had the Oxford vaccine, it wouldn't have had enough people to infect and mutate until that came to be. Essentially, we are all paying the costs for this greed on the part of AstraZeneca and all these other corporations, because the same thing is true of all these other corporate-owned vaccines. As much as we like to think that this inequality, this overt colonialism, even racism is over in 2021, it's just another proof that when crisis finally hits, people are just going to still act the same way they always have. All that pretense of being equal and thoughtful of equality just goes out the window. I mean, there's a, a lot of 
precedence for things like that because we have not that long ago native and indigenous groups being tested on for tuberculosis vaccines oh yeah and the u.s has been doing similar things over there too on black people testing all sorts of diseases and supposed cures sometimes without even notifying the people that were participating in these trials of what they were actually doing right and Um, i think that's really interesting because we were thinking about the four principles of medical ethics which was respect for autonomy benefits non-malefits and justice and we can see examples of these tenants being infringed upon such as autonomy yeah funnily enough those were actually established um, after the 1960s where a lot of these trials happened uh, that were completely unethical as we can now see these haven't stopped they've just been exported overseas because they weren't allowed to do them here anymore essentially so how has the vaccine been distributed in canada so far unfortunately it's been pretty unclear When it comes to Canada, we haven't had all that many vaccines pour into the country already. It's been a fairly limited supply. A lot of bigger countries like the U.S. who have more influence over the distributors have sort of gotten the priority. And let's be fair, they need it more than we do uh, with the amount of deaths they've been having. That said, Ontario's been sort of flip-flopping on how the vaccine was going to be distributed. Doug Ford first talked about having people contact their family doctors for a while, but the family doctors hadn't been notified of how this was going to work. It's been a bit of a mess. And now that we do have the vaccines, people have sort of really opened their eyes to that. Originally, the idea was to do it by occupation. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you want medical people to be vaccinated because they're going to be the ones vaccinating everyone else. You want people that worked in long-term care homes to be vaccinated because they're working with people that are very at risk. You wanted to vaccinate pretty much all the hospital employees, regardless of if they were a doctor or just a line cook or anything else, even a janitor anybody that would be in contact with these high-risk people. And of course, when it came to the general population after that, the idea was to go by age range because that's usually the bigger determining factor. Now, however, we see articles talking about how maybe that's a bit too complicated all of a sudden since, you know, the next people in line could be vaccinated would probably be cashiers and other customer service people at the bottom of the social ladder. Instead, they're going to be looking at different neighborhoods, essentially, see what they're risk of COVID is for a particular age group. It means that a lot of neighborhoods with African-Americans, Arabs, and other minorities that are more heavily touched by COVID are going to be vaccinated first, and a lot of people aren't happy with that. However, it also opens the discussion, maybe ignoring the racial factor that unfortunately exists in our society, probably wouldn't be a better way to do things either. Just to go back quickly on the, uh, the distribution of vaccines based off of career or job, I think it's really interesting how um, we've gone from initially deciding that cashiers or essential workers after the medical staffs and the medical workers would be vaccinated next. And I think we briefly covered this back in the universal basic income episode where we talked about how people are attributed a type of value with these menial jobs, such as like service working or retail, things like that. And we can sort of see now that even though the people in these positions would be the most utilitarian and like a good choice for the next group of people to be vaccinated, they're pretty low on the social ladder. The bigwigs up top decide that other people are suddenly more important, even though these are the people we have classified as essential workers. And like that's kind of the rhetoric that's been going on this entire pandemic. People would say things such as, thank you for being an essential worker, thank you for being a frontline worker, but these workers don't really want your thanks. You know, they just want to be safe as well. 
Yeah, it's uh, the paradox of, oh, you're an essential worker, but we're not going to pay you anymore. Yeah, the issue uh, is the person is not essential. The job is. But the person should be compensated the same way that is relative to the need of that job to have society function. Yeah, and also the risk involved, right? If you work at, say, a grocery store in the middle of a pandemic, normally you should be expected to be paid more because you're risking your life every day all of a sudden. But that hasn't really been the case. There was a hero pay for a while that was really a pittance, and even that's been gone for months now. Yeah, but like these people really should be the next in line. Like, for example, I work at the LCBO and I come into contact with at least 200 people a day. Like, if I do get the disease and I'm in contact with 200 people a day before I realize that I have the disease, that's an insane amount of spread from just me alone. It is important to note, though, that. This isn't necessarily a conspiracy theory where people just don't want to vaccinate cashiers because if they're going by region, obviously cashiers and other retail workers, they're going to be a part of the group that is vaccinated uh, if they're going by age range and neighborhoods. However, it's not going to be as focused on them as it was for, say, the doctors and all these other occupations. They're just going to be sort of included with you know, any other office worker, retirees or whatever that happens to fall in the same age range uh, and that live in the same neighborhood. Interestingly enough, even though we have all these people who want the vaccine because of their job or their own health concerns, there's also a large amount of people who are frightened of the vaccination, who mistrust it, right? We have this possible sort of tinfoil hat theory of, is the vaccine more frightening than the disease? Sure, the vaccine is made in a lab and to the average person like me who doesn't have a degree in biotech, I don't really know what goes <laughs> in the vaccine, right? As opposed to Alex, who has a much better idea coming from a science background. But I mean, this is sort of a reaction that existed with every sort of novel virus, bird flu, swine flu, all, all these previous pandemics that have broken out. We're always nervous about what is in this vaccine because people are, are worried that this mercury compound is bad for us as if we're injecting actual mercury into our bodies. We think natural is good, completely forgetting that mercury is found in nature. I mean, formaldehyde is found in apples as well. So you can't really go by a natural and organic is good and synthetic is bad sort of mind view. Although companies definitely play into that nowadays with branding, with the whole idea of plastering organic all over their packaging. Yeah. It's not necessarily always the case. In terms of general skepticism towards medicine, I think there's actually, it's not really surprising why a lot of people are distrustful of modern medicine. I mean, we talked about it earlier, how previously medicine was tested on people on the bottom of the social ladder at the time, usually people of different ethnic backgrounds, like the Native Americans or black people in the United States. And a lot of the time, you also had women whose medical issues were not taken as seriously. It was just, they slapped a label of hysteria on there and called it a day because the medical industry was dominated by men at the time. So a lot of these people that were sort of pushed aside and ignored or even were victims of the medical industry, of course, are still going to be very frightened of it and very distrustful today. And of course, people talk, that spreads. It is important to know that nowadays, medicine isn't really the same as it was uh, not too long ago, because people on the inside of the industry have tried to change it as well. You know, laws were put into place. We have more women and just a more diverse group of people in the medical industry. And the standards are much higher than they've ever been before. So, for example, the four vaccines that are approved in Canada, I personally have 
no reason to be afraid of any of them because I know that Canadian standards are fairly high and that they've been properly tested in clinical trials. They haven't ignored anybody. They haven't tested it only on men or whatever. And I would actually compare this with, say, the Russian vaccine, which came out months ago and was very controversial for the simple reason that they hadn't done all those clinical trials. The stage two and stage three trials were essentially just the general population. Uh, we haven't seen any consequence of that yet. Maybe they just got lucky. But who knows if down the line after a few months, we'll see people have some sort of syndrome or maybe a higher risk of, I don't know, heart disease or something because these vaccines weren't properly tested. Or birth defects, uh, right? We don't know how far along this can take or maybe it affects you genetically. I, I wouldn't be too worried on that front, knowing how vaccines work. But you're definitely right that for the general population who doesn't know how vaccines work, knowing that these haven't really been tested and haven't really been regulated, the door is open to all sorts of ideas. And uh, I think the fact that we have these standards really means that we don't have to have these sort of conspiracy theories and all that, or these wrong ideas about how vaccines work, because the information is theoretically out there for anyone who wants to look it up. It is. But the issue is that people usually get it wrong. That's We can go back to like the age-old classic argument against vaccines now, which is autism. We know that vaccines do not cause autism. That whole theory was founded on one paper written by Andrew Wakefield, and it's been discredited numerous times. He's lost his medical license. Yeah, this he, point, he lost his license because, I mean, the article was just pure nonsense. He was trying to push his own alternative to the MMR vaccine. Yeah, it was just bad science. And I mean, that's how science works. Whenever a paper comes out, other people have to peer review it. And in that case, it was just incredibly wrong. Yeah. And that's the whole thing with vaccines or like misinformation and like fear of science is that we sort of have these conspiracy theories that are hovering and thrown around and people don't know enough to discredit it on like a general level, which also, you know, brings us back to the initial point, which is, is the vaccine more frightening than the disease? For example, with infants or, or babies, the fact that parents would rather have their kids not be vaccinated than get autism speaks volumes about how the baseline for them is, I would rather my child die than have autism. Yeah, that is another point as well. And interestingly enough, I think it applies to this situation as well. I mean, just look at all the misinformation about COVID that was out there when this whole thing started. People compared it to the flu or said he was even closer to the common cold. It wasn't something you had to be afraid of. Um, they tried to downplay it while applying the downside of the vaccines. Right. People were downplaying it. And so we weren't sure about how we should really react as an individual or as a citizen. When the government suggested we should wear masks, a lot of people didn't. And then they regulated and sort of imposed these bylaws of you have to wear a mask to go inside um, stores. For example, in the United States, it became a really political issue all of a sudden when President Donald Trump refused to wear a mask and said, oh, it should be optional. A lot of places simply never had a full-on mask mandate or took forever before implementing one, even though the science was settled by that point on mask efficiency. I think the social implications of that is pretty interesting because you have people who want to wear a mask for A, either their own safety or people who wear a mask for B, the safety of others. Because we know how masks work. They don't protect the person wearing it. They protect uh, the other people around them because they keep the moisture particles contained in that area so you're not spreading it to other people. Yeah, the droplets. Yeah, exactly. So it is interesting, the idea of anti-maskers. 
the argument you hear is that, oh, it's my personal freedom. It's my right to not wear a mask. And it really does suggest that they are being selfish because they're not really worried about how that can affect other people. Like, sure, if you don't want to wear a mask, you don't have to wear a mask. But if I don't want to get sick, I have a right to not get sick. And therefore, if I'm running a store, I can refuse service. A lot of people talk about their own personal freedoms, but they rarely talk about their own responsibilities as well. For example, a lot of these anti-maskers had this fake argument that masks didn't work. Yet none of them were arguing for better masks. They were just arguing for, oh, if it doesn't work, then we shouldn't need to wear it at all. It just actually shows where their priorities were, which was simply to do whatever they want and to hell the consequences of their own actions. I think that really ties well into the vaccine question as well, because, well, the vaccines are coming out now. A lot of these people are scared about them or don't know much about them, even though professionals assure us that they're fine. A lot of people are going to choose simply not to have the vaccine. And, and it's, it's the same sort of logic. Yeah. And in terms of vaccines, like it's going to work better for these people under like the concept of herd immunity. Right. Where um, one person who isn't vaccinated can be in a group of, let's say, I don't know, five people who are all vaccinated. And if they don't have the virus, that one person isn't going to get it. It parallels the idea of mask wearing, because when it comes to mask wearing, it doesn't protect you, which protects the people around you. Whereas mm -hmm. the, the vaccine protects you as an individual. Yeah, the vaccine does both, because as you said, with herd immunity, some people simply can't be vaccinated because their immune system isn't good enough. They're either really, really old or very, very young. Whatever medical problem they might have, they can't be vaccinated. Fine, sure. If the disease never gets to them because everyone else is vaccinated, they don't need to be. It's not going to be an issue. That's why it's not only a good thing to be vaccinated for yourself. It also is a sort of social responsibility to pr better protect these more vulnerable people. And a lot of people who are refusing to get the vaccine are sort of banking on that where they don't need to have it if everyone else has it. It's a bit of it's a bit selfish that way, quite honestly, because for herd immunity to work, you need the vast majority of your population to be vaccinated willingly. Yeah, exactly. And these the people who are refusing it probably aren't the group of people who would be vulnerable. They're likely not the 90 year old elderly gentleman with asthma. They're likely not the immunocompromised pregnant woman. You know, what's also interesting, like surrounding the, the political aspects of COVID in regards to immunity or wearing a mask is that health has become a bit of an identity. Right? Sickness isn't something that has happened to you, but who you are, right? You have the status of vaccinated or non-vaccinated, mask wearing, anti-masker. And we all have to sort of operate under this sort of Schrodinger's COVID where we have to both pretend that like we have it and we don't have it. So we have to distance ourselves from other people because we might have it. And on the flip side, they might have it. So we have to distance ourselves from them. And like yeah. people are just sort of a sickness rather than yeah. like, a person. Yeah. It's essentially guilty until proven innocent, except in regards to everyone else and also yourself in regards to this disease. It's not everybody who's also been treated as guilty as others, if you will. Sure, you know, theoretically, we have to be careful about everybody else. A lot of people simply aren't careful. You're going to go see their friends or whatever, thinking, oh, they might not have it. Or, you know, oh, I can visit my parents because they probably won't have it. And this can also get kind of ugly when people tie that to stuff like racism, let's say. For example, a lot of Asian Canadians, Asian Americans, have been victims of hate crimes after COVID because it originated in Wuhan. Of course, these people have nothing to do with it, but people tend to think that, oh, they're going to be more diseased or more likely to be diseased than anybody else, which is, of course, insanity because the person who brought COVID to Canada as a case zero, uh, sorry, as a patient zero, wasn't even Asian in this case. 
And he came from Austria. Yeah, it really makes no sense, but people have sort of tied the idea of being Asian or what have you to being a carrier of this disease when that simply doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't stop with just Asian people as well. Once again, if we go back to the vaccine distribution, a lot of the neighborhoods that are probably going to be targeted are so-called racialized neighborhoods where they have a lot of minorities such as Asians, but also black people, Arab people, etc., that are simply more at risk. COVID isn't necessarily racist in and of itself, of course. The reason these areas are more at risk is simply because people of those ethnicities tend to be sort of lower on the social ladder, lower on the economic ladder. A lot of them tend to be either cashiers or like these lower paying jobs where they have to meet with a lot of people. And I've seen some people have a pretty big issue with seeing cashiers or seeing simply people of just lower class as well as underprivileged ethnicities in regards to COVID, thinking they probably carry it. If I know someone who's a cashier, I'm going to avoid that person like the plague, ironically enough. And I think that says a lot because these are the people that are, once again, essential workers. They are out there. They are oftentimes underpaid and they are being forced to work and protect the people that don't have to go out, that don't have to be at risk, that are either retired or working an office job from home or that are simply just higher paid jobs where they have to meet less people. Yeah. I guess in this scenario, like the poor are enlisted in protection of the privilege, not just solely with menial work, but with actively being exposed to COVID-19 by being in the public. Yeah, and they're often treated as such as well. It's uh, not only racism that has come out of this, but also just classism in a way. Speaking of classism, I think a good example of that is Texas recently. After their storms happened, their governor ended the mask mandate completely, essentially declared all businesses open, people wouldn't have to wear masks uh, unless the private businesses decided to adopt it as their own policy. Meanwhile, the governor himself, of course, was fully vaccinated. He wasn't at risk at all of getting COVID. So he wasn't affected at all by his own decision of putting other people at risk. I think that just really shows you a really good example of how some people have been twisting this pandemic to not necessarily their advantage, but to target more vulnerable people that they simply don't care about. Yeah, and why should they care about them? All these people are people who are lower on the social ladder than them. And it's a big example of, like, I got mine, so screw you kind of deal. Just in general, I think there's just a lot of outrage about the vaccines. People are wondering, are they good for you? Should you take them? Should you not? Uh, Who gets to have them first? Because not everybody can. Should people be forced to get them even? Or should that be a personal choice? regardless of if that's socially responsible or irresponsible. I think that is actually a really point of conversation. Should people be forced to get them? Because on one hand, it would help everyone medically in terms of being vaccinated from a deadly disease. On the other hand, it's super authoritarian and it takes a lot of agency away from Canadian citizens. Oh, yeah. It's the bioethical idea of autonomy that's completely thrown out the window in that case to favor the other ones. So there's definitely a discussion that needs to be had on that. On the one hand, it will save lives. There is no question about that. If people are forced to get the vaccine, if they're healthy enough to take it. On the other hand, giving that amount of power to a government can be a very scary thing. And if misused, it can be absolutely dangerous. You don't want the government forcing anybody to take any sort of medication that they don't want. And it also sets a precedent of um, how much the government can mess with our bodies. For example, if they can force us to get a vaccine, they can also prohibit us from getting medical health care. What if someone has lung cancer and needs treatment, but the government decides, well, 
you kind of did this to yourself when you were smoking eight packs of cigarettes a day, so we're going to refuse you uh, medical care for this. The same way where people could bring up the idea that you went away overseas for vacation during COVID, so we're going to refuse to vaccinate you. Yeah, we're going to refuse to treat you if you have COVID. I mean, I'm not going to lie. There is a certain level of vindication, if you will, where you see somebody that was very openly an anti-masker who downplayed the disease and then finally caught it and died because of their own irresponsibility. There is a certain level of, you know, they got what was coming to them. But like you explained with the smoker getting lung cancer, even then some people might be okay with that. But you start getting to a point where like, does this person have heart failure because of their genetics that they didn't have much control over? Or was it partially because of their diet? Maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe it's another factor. Medical issues are rarely ever clear cut. So setting a precedent with COVID would be kind of dangerous in that respect. So while I don't think it's necessarily a good idea that everybody should be forced to get the vaccine, in regards to priorities, I don't think people should necessarily be excluded from getting the vaccine if they want it either. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. No one should be excluded if they want the vaccine in the same way that no one should be forced if they don't want it. But there are a lot of like moral implications for both choices. Oh, for sure. And I think it's still the government's responsibility to be very clear about why people should get vaccinated. You know, make sure that the facts are publicly available. Try to make people more confident and more comfortable with the vaccine. Try to fight back misinformation. There's a lot that the government should be doing. But I think that forcing the vaccine onto people should be a last resort. As I was saying, there's been a lot of people that have been very outraged, very angry about all these different issues on the vaccine. Why are poor people getting it before me? I pay more taxes to the government, so I should be first in line, that sort of thing. Just to name a few. But instead, I think it might be more productive to instead focus that energy and those emotions towards the people who, like, for example, AstraZeneca, decided to put profit over human lives. This vaccine could have been open sourced, arguably should have been open sourced. We should have been producing this vaccine domestically, but we stopped doing that because the government doesn't want to be in charge of something a corporation can handle. I think in general, we need to take a serious look at who is running the show and how their decisions are the ones that are forcing us to make all of these decisions of where we prioritize the deployment of vaccines and... And how they ultimately profit off of them instead of genuinely caring for the welfare of human beings. So I guess, like, once again, we are saying neoliberalism. It sucks. Change it. <laughs> sure, but, you know, elections are going to be coming up at some point, both provincially here in Ontario and federally in a few short years, if one isn't declared before then. I think, once again, these things are important for people to keep in mind because lives could have been saved and we could have avoided a lot of this outrage if the people in charge had just been responsible instead. So what we've learned really from this episode is that even though we've had all these politics regarding COVID-19, there has always been corporations in the background continuing to profit off of, I guess, human suffering and, and dying as people's lives have drastically changed for the individual, for families, but not so much these organizations who still treat this as sort of a large business deal, Oxford's vaccine being sold off by the Gates Foundation. These powerful people who have always been in charge are still playing with human lives and that needs to stop. Thanks for listening to this episode of Last Past the Post. Join us next time as Alex and I discuss the issue of the Canadian housing bubble, why it's happening and who has to suffer for it. We'll be releasing episodes bi-weekly every other Sunday. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Last Pass Podcast. We'll see you next time.